G'day. Welcome back to the podcast once again. Indeed, for the final episode. As our time travel journey with Betty comes to a close, we find ourselves 75 years ago to the day. It's Thursday, 27th of February, 1947. Today, Bet, accompanied by Hank, arrives home in Sydney. A journey from Nanchang, which has taken two full months, by road, by river, by sea, and then finally by train from Melbourne. The whole family turned out to greet them as the steam train pulled into Sydney's central railway station and sighed to a halt. Even the overcast sky and passing showers couldn't dampen the excitement and relief of their arrival. Her year-long China adventure is over. Later today, Bet will be formally discharged from her UNRWA service and free to move on and create her new life. The timing is appropriate, not least because the Chinese communist insurgency has rapidly gathered momentum in the months since her departure. The front page of today's Sydney Morning Herald declares a significant offensive and victory by the communists in Manchuria and the northern province of Shantung. The communists claim destruction of two nationalist armies with the loss of 50,000 men. Yep, it's good that Bet's home. In this final episode, you'll get to meet the amazing Helen Polkinghorne, who has breathed life into Betty's letters these 75 years later. I know you'd like to join me in thanking her for persevering in what has turned into a very substantial undertaking. And what a fantastic job she's done. As we close the podcast series, I'd remind listeners that the notes for each episode featured an image, or snap, as Bet called them. Some apps, however, for example, Apple and Google Podcasts, don't include the images with the program notes. If you'd like to see them, you can scroll through the episodes at wasfubar.podbean.com. That's W-O-Z-F-U-B-A-H dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. Or on the Facebook page, Healing a Broken World, Betty Souter in China, 1946. To you, the listeners, many who've hung in throughout this year-long story and those who've joined along the way, thank you. Bet would never have imagined such interest long after she herself had passed into history. This story, this podcast series, has covered just one extraordinary year in what turned out to be an extraordinary life. She would never have said anything so boastful, but she's not around to correct me. Throughout her life, there were so many occasions when she swam against the tide and forged her own way. It wasn't that she refused to be stereotyped or put into a box. It just never occurred to her to rein in her curiosity, intelligence and dreams. For now, we leave Betty here on Platform 3, surrounded by family and with a firm grip on Hank, sheltering from the drizzle amidst the steam, chaos and bustling of disembarking train passengers. In about a year or so from now, a more complete biography of Bet's life and adventures will be published. So many stories still to tell, questions still to be answered. Did she ever return to the law? After all, that was her dream which had died with John. And how would her family react to Hank? 
If you'd like to know when the biography becomes available, just keep your subscription to this podcast channel active. Then one day, out of the blue, like her letters, and you can never be too sure when, an episode announcing publication will pop up in your feed. You've got to love the 21st century. For now, though, we'll close with a conversation between Helen and myself, Warren Henry. Thanks for listening. I think we should begin this in the way of all good conversations, Helen. Yeah, how's that? With champagne. Oh, yes. So I think we'll, uh, pe- we'll peel the foil <laughs> off this. It's been a hell of a journey this last year. It has. And I particularly want to so thank you oh. for the effort and so on you put into this. And also on behalf of Bet's family. Ah, oh, thank you. I've had great well, thanks, feedback and others. Thank you, Bet, because this has been corona time when no one gets to travel. That's true. But once a week I got to go to China. Mm. And uh, that was really nice. Thank you. Thank you, Bet. Well, yes, indeed. Thank you, Bet. It's been a hell of an adventure. We'll talk a little bit about it tonight. But first, here we go. Thank you. And you'll notice I've got Toto here on my knee. Yes. Toto is my little black dog. And he's been at all of our recording sessions. He has. He's tucked himself <laughs> down in there, and he's been uh, he's been a perfect companion dog. Yeah. But here we go. Here's cheers, Helen. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Sometimes it seems like a year, and other times it doesn't. It's been a it's been a long yeah. long time, and you know we've has it been a year when this this comes out? Mm-hmm. But it's been um, ten months now. Right. Ten eleven months. So, how did you find the journey? Oh. What what interested you? Um, well, I've, I found Bet to be a really interesting woman, a, a very, what I would now think of as a, a modern woman, but obviously she's not from this era. She's from back in the first half of last century and, and onwards. Um, so uh, I was surprised at how, how very, very modern she was. And I mean that from a kind of um, feminist point of view. She was a very independent woman and she kind of didn't seem to think twice about it, which made me think a little bit differently about how I thought women might have thought of themselves back then. Yeah, she was certainly uh, one cut from a unique mould in pretty much everything she did. Yeah, yeah. And to just head off to China in the first place. Yes. Um, she was obviously hurting and, and unhappy, but to come to, to come up with that idea, yeah. And as we have seen, it uh, you you are hailing lifts, be it ships or trucks or yes. whatever, Just rowing out into the middle of the river to get onto a boat and hauling yourself up and sleeping in all kinds of places and you know just really it was so full of adventure. And although you say that she was very sad, and of course she was very sad because she'd lost a, a very important, mm. you know, the love of her life, her her husband, so, and so early in the piece, such a tragedy. But she was very stoic. She didn't complain 
at, at all about uh, her broken heart. No, no. On occasion she became reflective and, of course, along the journey there was obviously healing and what quite fascinated me is that the first mention we have of perhaps a new love and significant person in her life... Your dad. My dad... <laughs> was the uh, the 4th of July party, which she had never mm. been to or considered before. Uh, but two days before, she had written to her Aunt Edith and said, yeah, she'd had four proposals and offers, but, you know, nobody that uh, nobody of interest so far. So mm -hmm. two days later, mm. she's reporting about uh, about Hank. And, and healing began, and you notice in, in her style of writing and everything her spirit has lifted but she'd go out on these extraordinary adventures I never knew that yeah. she was a horsewoman mm, but mm. you know and, and it's sort of so close to the proximity of war I mean there were still Japanese prisoner of war work gangs mm. that she would come across from time to time and she would uh, take a Japanese war horse and go off riding <laughs> in the paddy fields for miles by herself yeah to the total bewilderment she must have looked like an apparition because none of them would have seen a Western, yeah. a Western person, let alone a Western woman, on a war yeah. before. Um, and it was hairy out there. Don't forget the tigers. That's right. And the, and the bandits. And the, bandits. <laughs> and the communist civil war that was, yes. that was going on. Yeah, it was all happening. Um, I think the, the, one of the, the things that really got my interest was considering that the Nanchang city population was approximately 4 million, which was almost the entire population of Australia. Mm. There were 13 million in Changxi province, but 4 million just in the city of Nanchang. And in all of that, if you can imagine the population of Sydney right now, there was this little single cluster of about a dozen Westerners mm. who were... Certainly in the early stages, most welcome and, and well-fated and well-regarded and for, for all of the, the goodies and the relief and material they were bringing. Yeah. What got me was, well, I didn't know until now, you said that, that there were four million people in that city because I thought it was really small. Remember her descriptions of um, how few cars there were on the roads but how many... Uh, traffic police there mm. were at every corner, but there were only five cars or something in the whole place. <laughs> That's right. And the bus that would come through once a fortnight. <laughs> and I guess that's another thing that, that struck me was the, the bureaucracy that she both kind of revelled in and uh, was frustrated by, but she was very good at it. She, she rolled with the organisation uh, mm. uh, remarkably well. And I loved her language. It was very legalistic, but also very evocative. She could really tell a story. She could really paint a picture with words. And particularly with food. Yes, and that really she tells loved us, her food. That, well, she? it tells a story of how the Orient was still from Sydney, Australia, under a white Australia policy and so on. There were mm. Chinese restaurants everywhere like there are now, 75 years later. Mm. Mm. Um, so to go off to this extraordinarily unknown, exotic place, mm. um, I guess, you know, she talks about and describes in great detail the, uh, the chow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the soup and all of the different meals and... 
And what what's the drink? The drink that they the, had to... The, the Jimbo juice when they go... The um, Jimbo juice and they had to scull it. Gambe. Gambe. Gambe yeah. bang the glass down. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of binge <laughs> drinking going yeah. on in those days in China. Absolutely. And I've been to China and there, there was a lot of binge drinking then too. It was expected. But as a foreigner, I think that they worked out how to do it, which was you could elect one person in your party to drink, but back then everyone was drinking. Mm. So <laughs> hard work. Another theme that has sort of got me because it goes through all the letters really from day one is that her concern about hygiene mm. and disease mm. and fleas mm. and uh, and the coughing and the spitting yeah. and the, the the dirt everywhere yeah. just everywhere and now I'm sure that current China uh, is, is is very different to the one that was was here in post-war and before the communists mm. took control, but it was certainly she does she constantly comes back to that, even to the point where her reference to not wanting to fall off the rope ladder dangling off the side of the the landing ship she was clambering up. Her concern was not so much about getting wet, but being in the water and the river with all the disease and waste and effluent and mm. the open drains and the open sewers and. Yeah, well, four million people's sewerage going into the river. I guess that's a fair concern. <laughs> she was concerned. <laughs> and so she continually refers back. And, and yet her she clearly had a fondness for many of the Chinese people and the, uh, mm, uh, mm. found them interesting, perplexing. She does it when, as, as she gets to about August or September, she sort of says, well, I'm thinking I've really kind of learned all I can about China now. I don't think any other cities are going to be, to be all that different. So uh, she was perplexed by, uh, and often says, when she says something particularly funny and she just will often make the little comment, but this is China and, and that's how that's, it happens here and we think it. no more of it mm, and mm, move on. Mm. Um, I think now we are so much more sophisticated in our awareness of other cultures and so much more sympathetic as a result of that, but it was so literally foreign. Mm. A young woman from Sydney, whereabouts? Not, not Balmain? Where, where oh, was no, she, she was on the North Shore. She was Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft. So a young yeah. woman from Wollstonecraft finds herself mm. in the middle of China yeah. just after one war and just before another, or kind of during another. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the journey to Nanchang, I mean, nine flights to get to Manila, then a nut change to a four-engine plane to get across the South China mm. Sea to Shanghai, mm. and then to arrive in the middle of the night at 1am and find out that, well, hang on, nobody's actually expecting us, and it's a Sunday night, and so no drivers or vehicles have been sent. Yeah. And she's in this completely foreign country. Yeah. With her uh, friend Harry Bishop to, uh, and, uh, and one other from the, that initial flight. And then to get up to Nanchang was five days on the river plus mm. pretty much a half day from Qiuqiang up on that horrible old road. Mm. Don't the roads sound bad? And mm. she says, look, I'm not going to mention it anymore, but that's, that's because <laughs> I can't do it all the time, but it is just know it is constantly bad. <laughs> so that would be bad enough going from, say, here to Sydney, which is, what, 100k, but having yeah. to, or less, from here into Gosford. Yeah. But when you had to go 275 miles in a day to the mm. dentist over those shocking roads. 
with the man driver so who was coasting and speeding yeah, up. Yeah, and, and picking people up for the extra <laughs> cash and all that. And I was terrified for her going to that dentist. But it didn't turn out to be all that bad. Thank goodness. Travelling that far to go to what I was quite sure was going to be barbaric. Mm. And, and it wasn't. Yeah. Well, at least she didn't entrust herself to the street um, dentists down in Beijing who were exchanging utensils with the barber in the chair next next to them. (laughs) Well, we didn't have the knowledge of of disease that we have now. Um, Well, at least she didn't have a pandemic to deal with. No. It was interesting, before I came into this project, I was thinking about her life, and I'll be talking more in the postscript about this conversation about the next project and when when uh, the larger biography will be coming out i was sort of it was i was finding it fascinating that her story was sandwiched between two pandemics she was born at the end in 1917 in time for the 1918 spanish flu epidemic and 75 years later her story was being retold as we enter yeah. this pandemic yeah so they're an interesting couple of bookends. Yeah, there really is, isn't it? So your listeners may or may not know that we live in a, a block of units and we would go downstairs into well, what, what's called Warren's Cave, which is the garage downstairs, and that's where we would do our recording once a week, but not always once a week because a few times it was cancelled for because Important one of reasons. us had had... Uh, a COVID test or there was no, you couldn't be in a room with people or other reasons as well, but lots of COVID-related reasons. It, it has. It's been a... Fa- yeah, there's been all of that going on in this 12 <laughs> yeah. months that we've been doing this as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and fortunately for both of us, we and I think everyone we know have so far so good. COVID-free is so good. We're, we're living through a new surge. We are. Yesterday, and hopefully, today, by so the time this actually uh, hits, is, is this particular episode is released, the Omicron variant will be a matter of history. But, yes, um, or it might be our savior. Who knows? Who knows? But so, I, I was fascinated by like all those proposals and things that she had. Well, I guess that was a sign of the the times because. There were an awful lot of widows and widowers and there was very, very limited social security nets for people. So it was very, very common to, particularly if somebody had kids, to find somebody, you know, a marriage of convenience yeah. to get on with them to meet the mutual needs. Quick, smart yeah. and um, pretty unique set of people would have decided that it was a good idea to go to China to help out in a humanitarian... Absolutely. ..for an organisation that wasn't even formed yet. Mm. You know, except for those who are on the run for nefarious reasons. And I think that the, <laughs> the, whatever the HR, the recruitment process, tried to, to wheel them out. They were all adventurers. Yeah, And I definitely. guess adventurers are going to be frisky and they're all looking and needing and part of it is having, making sure you're having fun along the way. Yeah, yeah. And they certainly did. Oh, they were having... They'd have party after party and... Mm. And hangovers and it's work hard, play hard. Yeah. That seemed to be their motto. And in the midst of all of that, working and playing hard, she did have her several big road trips. 
The first one was she'd been there a couple of months when she went off to the regional meeting of the regional people to see if they could coordinate their efforts. And just as they were heading off, they found out the guy who'd called the meeting wasn't going to be there. Yeah, they but, couldn't even coordinate a meeting. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they went anyway <laughs> through Woohoo to Kew Chang and the trip, the, the, the clambering up ships and down ships and hailing yeah. down jeeps and trucks and fascinating story. Oh, and then yeah. when they went up to the mountains. Yeah. And what, I, one of the things I have found of interest, because only recently I've been, I've watched a couple of uh, uh, mini documentaries about, you know, the, the, the revolution that happened and the retreat of Chiang Kai-shek. And he was actually a ho- horrendous tyrant. And which one was he? he what side he was, was the, he on? He was the president of, the Nas- of National China. Uh-huh. He was the Generalissimo. Not the Communist Party. No. Oh, the Generalissimo. The Generalissimo. And she was really impressed and by his look and manner and, and everything. Yeah. But, of course, yeah. she was not privy to any of the information about, uh, and particularly yes. after Audra had left and the insurgency was really starting to take over. He was pretty brutal in uh, in his mm-hmm. his conduct. But, yeah, her, her dis- dealings about and, and all the false alarms for the Generalissimo coming in the entire town. Well, that's a city of four million people, this town, getting Stopping all Stopping regularly, up. like once a week or yeah, something. For getting a, ready for may the, be coming. He might be coming. <laughs> I, I loved the journeys, except for I was always terrified when I knew there were going to be all these names of different places along the way. And you did a good job in trying to coach me to say them but you'd get me ready at the beginning and say it's um Qu Chang or something Qu Chang and I'd go Qu Ching or something and, and invariably I'd get it wrong at least 10 times <laughs> oh I know much less than that but yeah it's tough yeah, and I yeah. and, and I'm sure that all of our uh, pronunciations have uh, Challenged people. And in fact, it was only when I was partway through I was challenged on my pronunciation of UNRWA. Ah. Because did I know that Ben actually called it UNRWA? Ah, right. And Hank actually called it UNRWA. But then again, he was from Kentucky, so. Ra, ra. (laughs) It does. (laughs) But anyway, we had started calling it UNRWA and. Yeah, so we tried to be consistent. We were consistent um, throughout. Yeah, listeners may have found some inconsistencies. They may have found Inconceivably. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. My pleasure. I did love it. I, I loved, although I didn't like it when she left town just because I had to tackle the names, I did really enjoy some of the trips that she went on and some of the amazing things she did, like being carried up that mountain. That was so well written. It was so descriptive. I got vertigo. <laughs> and you haven't recovered since. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think I can pinpoint it back to that mountain. <laughs> but that was quite a that was a, a love an extraordinary story. Yeah. Uh, of uh, that trip up to Cooling mm. where, where the temperature mm. just dropped away from the yeah. the hottest place she ever knew was Nanjing in the summer. So to be able to be carried yes. up this amazing precipitous pathways Mm. and the temperature dropped away to just lovely. Do you think that those pathways exist up to there anymore or have they got big highways going through the mountains? I would imagine there'd be either cable cars or highways or something these days Mm. because it Mm. is still air cooling. You can see it on a... On a map and you head in between Nanchang and uh, and, and on the way back to Qiu Chang and then you turn off and 
head out towards uh, Kuling, and it's uh, it's a mountain range, and there is a resort of some description up there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, to this day, because that was where the ruling um, the, the, the ruling class, I suppose, of China would uh, retreat to for the summer. And, yes. And, and Generalissimo had his place up there. Yeah. And at the same time that um, Bet and Hank were there, uh, and they did pass a Generalissimo in his sedan chair one day, walking, yes. coming up a path. Didn't really realise who he was until he was halfway past. But also General George Marshall, who had been sent by President Truman to uh, try and negotiate a, a peace between the, the nationalists and the communists. And as we know from the podcast and other news snippets I've put in, those talks all failed by December. It was There was going to be no reconciliation of any kind between the nationalists and uh, the Chinese. And Bet even talks about that, that in her final, one of her final letters, she says, you know, I think, frankly, that this is going to go on for a long time and there, there is mm. ultimately going to be a civil war before this place can settle down. Yeah. So it's amazing about her, not naivety, but her innocence of China that across the course of a year, seeing what she did and learning what she did and observing and listening with all of these political ructions going on, um, how her, I guess her knowledge just gets richer and her view mm, shifts mm, quite quite markedly. Mm. Yeah, well, she was an intelligent woman and by the end of it she was a well-informed intelligent mm. woman so her assessments were always good. Um, I didn't read any of her reports... Well, I'll make them available to you. I, I put a few snippets and extracts into the podcast as time has gone on. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, I have them. And, uh, and these letters, they're just so precious. This is the... Oh, uh, yes. This is the sound of rustling letters. The paper's the so thin paper because weight really mattered. So it did. It, you can see through them and they're so delicate to hold. And yet, you know, you were, they were limited to, to four pages. So quite often she would write on both sides of the, uh, of the letters just oh. to, uh, to get more, uh, more information into them. And quite often she typed, which is good, but she kept the, the spaces between the lines pretty tight. Yeah, single, no. single spacing <laughs> to get in as much as possible. And the idea that they came up with of the circular letters, because unlike mm. today, there's... No easy no photocopy email. or email or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, that's another reason the paper was so thin, so you could get more copies together through the carbon sheets so the typewriter mm -hmm. could punch, mm -hmm. punch through more copies. Yeah. She was frugal too. Like, she had her eye on everybody's expenditure. She did. But she was also very keen and happy to go shopping. Oh, yes. <laughs> Take her allotments and allowances and go down to Silver Street or mm. to the fabrics. or mm. And her tales of going downtown with, uh, with Marge, Marge Block. Marge, yeah. Well, that was a good friendship. It was a profound and, and it was a lifelong friendship. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they would have been pretty intense. They were intense bonds. And likewise with Keith, Keith Kesteven, Kay, as she keeps talking about. Um, Bet's second son, Keith, is named after Keith Kesteven. Uh -huh. In fact, Keith Kesteven was his godfather. Yeah, intense bonds, you're right. So at the moment... She's arrived she, back in Sydney. She's back in Sydney, OK. With Hank in tow. And there are many, many interesting twists, turns and adventures that still lie ahead. Yeah. And yeah. there'll be uh, 
Delby dealt with because this podcast really started out of my original project, which was to do a larger bio- biography of, of Bet because she was one of the very first female lawyers mm. in, uh, in New South Wales. Had to fight through an intensely misogynistic and unwelcoming profession. Mm. And then, of course, she was married and then the, drama, you know, the, the trauma of she had less than a month with her new husband before he left for the war not to return. Mm. Uh, then the China adventure and wow, what what a lot she's packed into just one year that we've been mm. that we've been dealing with. And then there are a whole lot of things and adventures that, and I don't want to do spoiler alerts now, but uh, uh-huh. I, I'll I'll do one. It was an interesting thing that I'll I'll give a spoiler alert because and we've mentioned that she did go on to have children, of which I'm one, and Bill Keith, and also a daughter Jan, who is the third child, and. We have, in the course of all of this, come across, or Jan has this little five-page, I think it's five pages, handwritten, which are do's and don'ts for a young single woman travelling the world. Uh And I hadn't realised until going through this adventure that that was better qualified than most to (laughs) give advice on the sorts of things, and they're very, very practical, just bullet mm-hmm. point tips mm-hmm. about don't go into a, single, a man's cabin unless your brother's with you. It's, yeah, sensible, logical things, but mm-hmm. they're very, very important when you're on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And there would have been and, and any lifelines for her other than the UNRWA lifelines were, were thin and, and very far away. Yeah, yeah. In a world that was war-torn and just destruction and hunger and... Everything, everywhere. Yes. It's incredible to think of it. Mm. What, it what it would have been like if she'd got lost, how mm. she would have been able to find her way out in a, a, a country where people just didn't speak any English and she didn't speak any of the language, really. Mm. Uh, and people had so little, like feeding themselves was a challenge, although she... Thought they all looked pretty well fed. Yeah, many of them. Although she did all concede that there were there were there were problems and so on. I think she was lucky that she didn't go first hand into the worst of those areas. Well, she thought that Huan was the worst of those. Hunan areas. was the worst, but she she wasn't in the bad part of Hunan yeah, when yeah. she went to the dentist. Mm-hmm. So, mm. but just cutting back, I, so my original project was to write a larger biography of, and the adventures and the interesting twists, turns and so on that occurred um, after China. Uh, but I got waylaid when in my research, uh, Bill gave, had access to this box of letters, mm. the treasure chest I referred to way back mm. in the introduction. And the minute I opened and read the letters... I thought this is a whole. This, this, is, this is a story to yeah. be told in and of itself. Yeah. So that has been a, a COVID distraction, but uh, within about twelve months, the uh, the larger biography I trust will be finished, and mm-hmm. it'll be a, it'll be a very interesting read mm. because her story was set against uh, just the most dramatic backdrop of world events and circumstances and places and mm-hmm. times and. So on. So it's a story I'm looking forward to. Uh, well, it's her story. She's the one who'll be telling it, but it's a, it's, it's a story I'm looking forward to presenting and digging forward. into. Yeah, well, it, 
it just reminds me that that's the old Chinese curse. May your children live in interesting times. Mm. We don't really want to live in interesting times. <laughs> no, no, thank you very much. <laughs> it's actually been interesting at various times during this very large project that we've undertaken, I believe, uh, that this will be the 58 episode, 58 episodes that we've... All right, wow. Um, ..that we've done. Well, congratulations to us. Mm, I think so. And, you yeah. know, here's cheers. I think cheers. we should uh, chink the glasses and uh, cheers again. Thank you. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by me, Warren Henry, and the voice of Helen Polkinghorne by Helen Polkinghorne. And the featured tune from 1947, Serenade of the Bells by Joe Stafford, with Paul Weston and his orchestra. In the sleepy town of San Juanita There's a story that a padre tells Of a gay senor and sin and the serenade of the bells Seems they ask the Padre for permission To be married early in the spring But the folks had made just one condition That the mission bells had to ring Everyone knew the bells were broken And hadn't sounded for a long, long time Then one night the village was astounded For the bells began to chime Still the bells are broken goes the story if in your heart a true love dwells They will ring for you in all the glory That's the serenade of the bells Everyone knew the bells were broken And hadn't sounded for a long, long time astounded for the bells began to chime still the bells are broken goes the story but if in your heart a true love dwells they will ring for you in all their glory that's the serenade